0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. The USU Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, or CAI, looks across all disciplines to spot threats posed by emerging technologies and other threats. CAI students predicted a novel zoonotic outbreak last year. To talk about that. And uh, today on the program, we have the director of the Center for Participatory Intelligence and USU Associate Professor of Political Science, Jeannie Johnson, on with us uh, for the hour. Jeannie Johnson, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, Tom. Thanks.
0: Uh, good to have you with us. we got a little bit of an echo, so we'll have to make sure we solve that. Um, uh, we also have with us uh, two uh, students from the center. Uh, James Brazel, do we have you on? Okay, great. And Calvin Liu?
2: Yes,
0: I am. Welcome to the program. We're also talking with Matt Barrett, who is co-founder of the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence. He's former assistant director of the CIA. Matt Barrett, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Appreciate you being on with us. We're going to talk about the coronavirus pandemic through an anticipatory intelligence lens. Uh, Let's see. So do we have Jeannie back with... We're working you on bet. that. Uh, yes, okay, right G- here. great, good deal. Did we get rid of the echo? And I think we got rid of the echo. Yes, yeah, so that's good. Um, so, uh, tell us what anticipatory intelligence is.
1: Well, the label is within the National Intelligence uh, Strategy that can be found online. So, it's a creation of the intelligence community by and large. The idea is to think through, uh, potential over the horizon events before they arrive and therefore do a better job of preparing for them. This is especially important in an era of emergent technology where so much of our civilization and the way we connect to each other is changing and In addition, we have a changing climate on top of that, which makes a lot of our biological world in flux. And so thinking through those complex systems, both the um, technological ones that we create and the biological ones that exist, it means we have the potential for something the intelligence community calls emergence, which is a really surprising event. Uh, that can take us off guard and can have potentially catastrophic consequences.
0: Well, like a coronavirus pandemic, right?
1: You know, it's interesting. So James and Calvin will both speak to this, but a coronavirus outbreak was not actually what you would call a black swan event, a completely unforeseen, wow, where did this come from kind of event and part of the genius of Calvin's paper that he'll speak to is that he walked through just how likely and plausible it was for an event like this to take place and not just once but potentially with increased frequency in upcoming years because of climate change.
0: Yeah, and I think this was uh, Calvin's paper was submitted what, December of last year? Yep. Yeah, so yep. so well before any of us knew about the uh, about the pandemic. Right. Uh, but your point is that we, we, we should be able to, you know, foresee at least some of this, or, or, or in general terms. Uh, I was reading an article, this is in Liberalis magazine, um, the, the publication of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. There, there is an analogy there, an illustration that helped me understand anticipatory intelligence. Um, I'm not sure if this was yours, Ginny Johnson, or someone else's, the difference between a baseball catcher and a baseball hitter.
1: So um, no, that's not mine. I can't okay. claim it. That's our, <laughs> our excellent staff writers at USU who took a really complex concept and boiled it down into terms that were easily accessible. And you know, we chuckle because people stumble on our name often, anticipatory intelligence, and we get a little bit of teasing for um, how many syllables are involved. But the bottom line is, it is what we are about, and it's the proper label for what we do, and we are really proud of the fact that we are the first in the nation um, to stand up a program that focuses on anticipatory intelligence in an intensive way. And the reason that um, this is difficult to achieve, and we're so proud of it, is that it must be an interdisciplinary program in order to be done right. So if you're going to do a good job of anticipating events or emergence within complex systems, you have to have experts from a really wide variety of backgrounds bringing their expertise to bear in order to understand the dimensions of your problem. So. Calvin and James represent two of those dimensions. James comes from the social sciences. Calvin comes from the hard sciences. And to date, within our two cohorts that have come through our CAI program, we have over 30 majors represented, Mm. which is really impressive and is part of the magic of creating innovative solutions and timely new insights.
0: Yeah, that's that's incredible. Um, just I've, I've brought it up, so I'll. I'll I'll flesh this out. What the writers in this article said is, is, uh, you know, before maybe the intelligence community is like a a baseball catcher, stop the balls, right? Stop the incoming uh, things that are coming in. But, uh, you know, you know the point from which it's coming. It's coming from the pitcher. What about something, a rotten fruit coming out of the stand or or other Mm -hmm. unanticipated? And so then they compared maybe anticipatory intelligence to being a successful hitter. You've got to recognize the oncoming pitch.
3: Hey, Jeannie, can I jump in and um, you could just this is Matt, by the way.: Yes. Um, you, have, you have three male voices coming at you this morning, Tom, we probably ought to identify ourselves when we jump in. but Very um, good. Jeannie's point of the necessity of bringing in people with different disciplines, there's myriad examples of why that's relevant. Data um, scientists, data science is. Data science is Uh, playing a a very big role in the ability of of us to anticipate um, human and machine behavior. And there's a lot of power coming out of that science. Folks in the social sciences realm, obviously, are not studying that. They're studying other things, history, um, cultural anthropology. If those two worlds don't come together a little bit, some of the folks in the data science realm, they will not be able to anticipate what some of the cool things they're bringing to society, uh, what those effects might be. Across society, it's the folks over in the social and behavioral sciences that could understand and anticipate that, but they've got to have a sense of what is happening in the data science realm. But they, they won't see it they won't see it coming. And and a point that you just made about what if it what if the pitch isn't coming from the pitcher? Um, the class that uh, Jeanie and I taught just this past semester, art and science of anticipating the future, that covered. Um, topics as, as, as wide as uh, cognitive bias, complexity science, team dynamics, visual thinking. And Complexity science is a big topic, so you know, we, could, we could spend two hours on just that, but let me just touch on one aspect of complexity science and why it matters, getting back to your illustration of um, what if the ball's not coming from the pitcher. A, um, a Swiss watch, you know, expensive Breitling watch, that's a complicated piece of equipment it's not complex in the sense that you can look into that watch. You can see the gears and what's happening. And in a very linear kind of way, you can sort of see if, if that gear starts to break down, these other gears will start to break down. The watch will stop. Complexity science is exactly the opposite. And one aspect of it is there's interdependence among, among a bunch of actors and factors. But you can't see with utter clarity the degree of which that interdependence is going to manifest itself. So you suddenly have a whole bunch of stuff happening. It's been happening for decades, and on one day, uh, a, a Tunisian um, street merchant sets himself on fire, and the entire Middle East—you know—you have a micro event that suddenly erupts, kind of surprises everybody with a macro event across across the realm. That's complexity.
0: Mm. Yeah, and the world's getting more complex, right? Yes, not less. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, Jeannie Johnson, this is—you know. Uh, both of you you and Matt were both in the CIA right and the intelligence community is tasked with peering into the future right this very complex uh, future and, and and a lot of uh, moving parts and then trying to protect us or predict threats or protect us from from threats what, what are the factors that, uh, that that go into anticipating these these threats
1: well, as we've mentioned, we we are really proud of the fact that this is interdisciplinary because that's one of the things that the intelligence community is trying to achieve. And in some ways, you know, our program has been complemented as being ahead of the curve even within the intelligence community. So we work with National Intelligence University, which is the credential-granting university for the intelligence community. And um, and some of their faculty members have flown out and worked with us on our program. And part of why they're willing to make such a strong investment in us is that we are able to do things here at Utah State that are more nimble and flexible and exploratory than uh, the larger bureaucracies of the intelligence community. So... One of those that we're exploring is building these interdisciplinary teams and having students test out a wide range of different kinds of analytical and anticipatory tools to understand better what their utility may be and also what their limits may be. So the, the course that Matt was referencing, The Art and Science of Anticipating the Future, was exactly that kind of experiment this year and the students came away with just really stunning insights about where some of these tools can get you and where they fall short mm.
0: and uh, i guess you always have to ask well, what what aren't we asking right <laughs> the, mm. the blind spots that must i must worry the intelligence community for example
1: well you heard me speak about this on your show before uh tom But one of the glaring blind spots for our intelligence and defense community is a thorough investment in understanding the societies and cultures of other places. We're pretty good at focusing on technologies, and we're pretty good at focusing on um, the sorts of things that we can capture and count. But really understanding the way other peoples around the world think and operate, and therefore the way their societies are going to react to these events that remains a deficit spot that we need to continue to work on.
0: That's why this is well, to and me. it's not. You go know, ahead.
1: Oh, sorry, Tom.
3: No, I, go, go. I just ahead. wanted to add that it, 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 even um, you know I spent 32 years out there with those folks, and they, they uh, absolutely wield world class um, expertise in culture and um, in history. The second part of what's challenging for them is to articulate the relevant parts of that in a way that a senior policymaker, maybe a president, maybe a Secretary of State or Defense, um, articulated in a way that isn't 47 pages. It might have to be a, a page and a half, and it has to be pretty forceful. You know, if they've got a view and they're making a we're trying to make a point, that same Secretary of Defense has 17 other issues coming at him um, or, or her at some point, and, um, you know, that intelligence voice has to be both um, correct and and persuasive, sufficiently forceful, and that that's a whole other uh, sort of challenging and intriguing area of the uh, Intel policy dynamic.
0: Yeah, got to be a good communicator as, as well. Um, so Jeannie Johnson, before we go to our, our students, I uh, definitely want to talk to them, um, I guess the, the, what we've been talking about here is an illustration of why this needs to be interdisciplinary. And I was reading that uh, you have all, all manner of majors, including an art history major?
1: That's right. And not only do we have an art history major, but we really benefited from the mentorship of the art department this last semester. One of the challenges that the intelligence community has assigned to itself is to do a better job of thinking visually, of cognitive visualization, because when you're dealing with a complex problem set, there are so many different variables that it's really difficult to capture the full um, extent of the problem if you're just doing it in written prose. Visual images do a better job of helping you get your head around it and then also help you do a better job of communicating in, um, in simpler, more accessible terms the problem set that you're trying to convey. So we invited the art department to come and Uh, show us some examples of really effective visual communication and walk us through the steps required to create effective visual communication and so appreciated their mentorship and the learning that we received from them and look forward to continuing that relationship into the future. Mm.
0: By the way, Jeannie Johnson, before I turn to Calvin Liu, did you um, <laughs> when when this uh, pandemic hit? Did you did you say to yourself, well, "Hey, wait a minute! <laughs> I received a paper in December about this."
1: Oh, we were all cheering Calvin on. We were all cheering <laughs> Calvin on. He got to do the victory dance, right? Yeah. Uh, I think you would be a little terrified to know all of the different things that our students have anticipated, and again. These aren't, this isn't a crystal ball kind of exercise. These are um, really smart students in their area of expertise looking at the conditions, like Matt was mentioning, the conditions that are present and saying, hey, we've got conditions present for this kind of an event in a complex system. A very small event could start a cascade effect that would result in a large catastrophe. So, um, you know, we, our students get used to thinking about the end of the world in lots of different angles, and, um, and, and Calvin's is the one that came to pass. But, but just to give you a couple of examples, uh, we have one student looking at something called the Kessler Syndrome, and this would happen if space debris hit one of our satellites and caused the cascade effect in, in space. It would effectively take out our entire GPS network <clears throat> and bring civilization, as we understand it, to a halt for a while. Um, way more of our lives, our financial lives, our transportation lives, um, communication lives are connected to GPS than you might imagine. And one piece of space debris uh, that uh, fell out of orbit and started a cascade effect could massively alter that Uh, Another student looked at if the Russians decided to get serious about targeting a disinformation campaign at disrupting financial markets. As you know, the stock market rests almost entirely on confidence, on attitudes. And so if their disinformation campaign um, increased in sophistication in the way that they have planned – they, they have the capability, potentially, to really disrupt financial markets. Another one, and this is a, a favorite of Matt's, but um, is an, a solar flare from the sun that has the capability to wipe out uh, electricity for a significant region, and you know, based on the size of the solar flare, potentially for a significant patch of the globe and how difficult it would be to get electricity back up and running because of the lack of redundancy in our electrical grid systems. So that's just, you know, gives you sort of a smattering of the variety of kinds of uh, potential incidents that these students examine and play out the consequences, not just the first order consequences, but the second, third, fourth order consequences in a complex environment. And the utility, of course, is thinking through those scenarios so that you are better prepared when they hit. So I have to admit, we almost had a little bit of collective guilt as a class. Like, wow, <laughs> by thinking through these scenarios, did we actually cause one to come to pass so that we could study it as a case study? You know, is this this it almost seems surreal to be living in the midst of one of our student papers.
0: Yeah, that, that does seem very surreal. As you enumerate uh, just some of those examples, that's, I mean, it's fascinating and, and, and troubling. That we're <laughs> right. I, we we have a right. sense that we're vulnerable, but to uh, to you know enumerate those that way to, it makes us realize how vulnerable we are. But was, but you right. know we can't just bury our, our heads in the sand. That's why we need to plan out these things. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking uh, with uh, uh, people associated with the USU Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, and uh, we're talking with Jeanie Johnson, who is the director, uh, Matt Barrett, who's co-founder, and with a couple of uh, students. Um, at the center, James Brazel and Calvin Liu. I want to turn next to to Calvin Liu. So, um, I, I, I'm, I'm just about 100 percent sure that uh, when you submitted your paper in December, Calvin, you, you probably, you probably couldn't have predicted that. Okay, by by March, we're going to be all, uh, you know, neck deep in this.
4: Yeah, yeah, when I first submitted my paper, like, back in December, I'm just like, okay, so I just, like, anticipated a possibility of a pandemic happening, but the chances of this happening, this, like, upcoming winter, I was like, oh, probably not. But then I get back to class uh, the following January, and the first thing, I'm taking an epidemiology class, and the first thing my professor says is that there's a new virus that's been found in China. And I was, like, shooketh, because I was could this become the pandemic that I wrote about the yeah. last three weeks ago? So yeah, you could say I was kind of shocked, but like also not, kind of not shocked at the same time because one thing that I really like want to focus on the paper is that the next threat to our national security was not going to be a uh, like a malicious actor, but more natural.
0: Mm-hmm. And that is one worry, right? That that uh, you know somebody could synthetically manipulate biological organisms and then weaponize them. But but uh, as as you said in your paper, you know more likely that uh, you know, I mean nature (laughs) nature is pretty dangerous on its own. So what you said in the paper?
4: Yeah, because like if you look back into like our history, most of all, most of the actually all the pandemics were caused by uh, nature uh, creating or us exposing ourselves to the natural environment and picking up a new virus. Um, For example, um, when we look into the swine flu that happened in 2009, what caused that was the mixing of a human influenza virus, uh, a swine influenza virus, and the avian influenza virus mixing all together in a pig, and then then a uh, human getting exposed to it, creating a new strain that none of us has been exposed to. Luckily, back then, it wasn't... As lethal, but it still spread really fast. But during our time right now with coronavirus, uh, clearly it's a lot more um, lethal and can spread a lot as well as an influenza pandemic.
0: And as you think through this, uh, you, you uh, say that, quoting uh, from your paper, nature is the best hacker of our technological advances. And you talk about this arms race between you know um antibiotics and uh you know and uh, bacterial infections
4: oh, yeah yeah um because if you think about it uh nature what especially the organisms living in nature what they want to do is to survive and survive the best they can with what our, with our technologies we've created antibiotics but as we clearly see is that there's a lot of uh bacteria that have developed antibiotic resistance because they've been naturally selected and the strongest survive of these bacteria. Because with antibiotics, um, it needs uh, the misuse of antibiotics can allow uh, some bacteria to survive and develop a resistance. And then because those bacteria survived, they can grow, multiply, and then continue to spread. Um, and with antibiotic misuse, um, that includes like not finishing your antibiotics, um, taking antibiotics for like a viral uh, infection. Or um, saving your antibiotics and using it and distributing it for, to other people, mm. if that kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah. Uh, by the way, what drew you to this particular topic? Is this your, is this your field?
4: So Yeah, so uh, what I studied for my undergrad was biochemistry and human biology. So I was very interested in uh, microorganisms and infectious diseases. Um, during that, uh, that semester, I also took a course called communicable disease control. And that really, like, uh, went in concert with taking anticipatory intelligence. I really thought, oh, it would be nice to uh, think of a paper of having a pandemic being our next national threat. So my, so I was attracted because I learned a lot about the fact that the chance of microorganism, microorganisms developing and becoming uh, sh- stronger and bypassing our medical system, really like attracting me. I kind of want to like see how, wh- how the United States um, infrastructure is able to handle mm. uh, a possible pandemic. Um, looking at, and during my research, I found that the United States, we only really had a plan for an influenza pandemic because if, uh, influenza pandemics are the ones that have the highest chance of occurring. But that doesn't mean that other pandemics could occur. Like um, back in uh, the 14th century, we had uh, the bubonic plague, the Black Death, and that was caused by a bacteria. But because that was so long ago, and since we have antibiotics now, we don't think a bacteria could cause the next pandemic. But the chances of that happening is still possible given uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. But there's a whole host of other microorganisms that could become pandemics, like uh, protozoa and which are like malaria and stuff, those kind of diseases um, could be caused by protozoa. Um, but then we also have um, other viral diseases besides flu. So I really wanted to emphasize, like, oh, we are not prepared for another pandemic.
0: Yeah, in fact, in your paper, you say the, the current pandemic preparedness plans are both too specific and too dated. So, so too specific, I guess, uh, pointed toward influenzas and and too dated? Yes. Is that what you said?
4: Yes. Yeah, so um, our uh, current uh, pandemic plan for uh, the influenza is not being developed every year. Our last one was in 2017, but before that one, it was back in 2009, after the during the swine flu. So our current plans for our is for possible pandemics is not being like updated constantly. It's just like, oh, we'll like update it once in a while, and hopefully it will. Uh, a pandemic won't happen
0: this next 10, 20 years. Hmm. What What's the uh, usefulness of uh, thinking through these problems before before they hit? I mean, in uh, one one, <laughs> one some terms, it's it's obvious. But what, and having gone through this exercise and now we're living it, what would you say about the, the usefulness of thinking through th- these thought exercises and and uh, doing these predictions?
4: Oh, it was so useful because the idea is that, like, we're with the anticipatory intelligence program. Um, what we did is that we looked at all the possibilities that could occur if one like actor or event occurred. So with it, I like looked at possibilities of effects in like the U.S. government, uh, the, our security, and like n- natural life of like humans and like business as usual. So it was very useful. To, like, to, like, learn and apply to my future field where, I, um, where I'll where i look at possibilities of uh, my research and stuff like that. Mm. So with Center for Inspiratory Intelligence, it's super useful, super great, because we are able to think out of the box uh, from how most people are taught uh, in their undergrads to just focus on certain problems that in their field rather than... Um, looking uh, outwards and looking at all the different possibilities and looking at the context system that is uh, our lives. Mm.
0: Uh, just before we we leave this, um, and we're talking uh, right now with Calvin Liu, uh, who's a student at the uh, USU Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, uh, he, he wrote a paper submitted in December predicting uh, or thinking through uh, pandemics and, and the, the problems and the, the fact that we're not, uh, we weren't uh, prepared. Um, in this paper as well, you you look at another um, series of, of potential threats, and that's uh, precipitated by climate uh, change, and, and that that might uh, alter the range of, uh, I guess, biological threats. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, so with climate change, um, a lot of the tropical regions, Are beginning to warm up, and then more like temperate regions are also beginning to warm up and becoming tropical areas. So another a big thing that I like looked at was vector-borne diseases, being uh, diseases that are spread by mosquitoes, fleas, and other like vectors, um, beginning to move up in latitude. So like if they're found in like let's say the Caribbean, they can start being found in Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Texas, and so on. So with with the warming climate, uh, these vectors are able to spread uh, up into uh, new territory and expose us to uh, uh, diseases that we've never been exposed to here in the United States. For example, like dengue virus, um, it's some there's been some people has been uh, found with it in Florida, but they've usually been contained. But if as the climate warms, these uh, mosquitoes that spread dengue virus is able to uh, expand their territory into uh, further into the continental United States exposing more people to these viruses um, and then can start a little uh, mini epidemic in with dengue virus uh, as well as like Zika virus um, and malaria because we think of malaria as like a disease that's out in like Africa and India but uh, what many, many don't know is that malaria used to be here in the United States, but we were able to control the mosquitoes and um, remove the mosquitoes from the populations here in the United States. But those mosquitoes are able to live in here in the United States, and if as the climate warms, they'll start um, repopulating their old territory. Um, other problems with climate change is that as people start moving, as like one of my uh, another student in the class about climate refugees. They'll start migrating out of their old territories, their old uh, habitats for humans, and then move into new areas. And as these new areas become populated, they may intrude onto new um, lands and be exposed to more zoonotic diseases. For uh, those who don't know what zoonotic means, um, it's the idea that a disease that is usually found in the animal world can jump towards humans. For example, it can be was able to jump from uh, chimpanzees into humans.
2: Mm-hmm. And
4: as with our current pandemic, coronavirus was found, was supposedly um, found in bats, but then jumped into humans and began to spread because we've started encroaching and exposing ourselves to these new diseases because of climate change. And then, yeah, the biggest thing is that Vector-borne diseases and exposing ourselves to new diseases because of migration, because of animal migration as well.
0: Mm. well we're talking here with the uh, uh, Kavindu. He uh, uh, he uh, thought through the next pandemic. Uh, this was in December, and now we're we're living it. Uh, we're talking with uh, folks associated with USU Center for Anticipatory Intelligence. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk with another student associated with the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence. That's James Brazel, uh, who in his paper, uh, I think also submitted in uh, December, uh, thought through uh, pharmaceutical supply chain bottlenecks and uh, drug shortages. There again, we're, we're living through this now. Um, and uh, later in the program, later in the hour, we want to uh, get into talking about Security implications of the current pandemic, some things that you may not be thinking about uh, as we live through this uh, pandemic. We'll have more following this.
2: Support for the UPR-produced podcast, Debunked, is made possible by the Utah Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health, providing substance use disorder, mental health, and suicide prevention resources throughout Utah. Information at dsamh.utah.com. Did you know
1: that your student may already be in a program that prepares kids for college? The Gear Up Grant from the U.S. Department of Education provides funds that allow middle and high school students to get a taste for university education. The program targets schools where more than half of the student body is on free or reduced lunch plans, giving low-income students access to college that might not otherwise be available. Students begin in seventh grade and remain with the program into their first year in college.
0: This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. The USU Center for Anticipatory Intelligence looks across all disciplines to spot threats posed by emerging technologies and other threats. Uh, two uh, students at the center predicted um, some of the things that we're living through right now, including the pandemic. Uh, this was back in December, and uh, we're talking uh, with those students, James Brazil and Calvin Liu. We're also talking with the director of the center, Jeannie uh, Johnson, and with the uh, co-founder of the center, Matt Barrett. Jeannie uh, Johnson and Matt Barrett both worked previously for the CIA. Matt Barrett was former assistant director of the uh, CIA. Uh, so, before we uh, talk to James Brazel and uh, his uh, thought experiment uh, looking at uh, drug shortages and uh, um, and bottlenecks in the supply chain, and that that's something we're living through uh, uh, now as well. Uh, uh, for Jeannie Johnson and, and Matt Barrett, I'd <laughs> It, it, it just I'm just curious, you both work for the CIA and it was your job to you know, look uh, ahead to, to threats and to try to help prevent uh, threats, so kind of living in that world. And so the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, kind of living in that world as well. If I put myself in, in your shoes, I think maybe all day looking at threats, I'm, I might go home a nervous wreck. I just That's a parenthetical <laughs> question. I don't know, Jeannie and, or, or Matt, you want to tackle that?
1: I'll, I'll certainly let Matt pitch in as well, because I, I think he is an exceptional model of how to do this right. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to have to anticipate potential disastrous consequences. Um, it's another thing to be in the middle of living them. So I'm going to let Matt speak to what it's like to keep up morale while you're in the middle of living one. What I will say is that within our center, we don't just examine threats. The second half of what we do is resilience. So the students, for each threat that they identify, isolate, and explore, they also need to think through strategies of resilience and collectively As a CAI cohort, we have uh, put together a resilience framework, drawing on concepts of resilience from multiple disciplines across the board. And then we look at the societies and the infrastructure that we are examining or is under threat and think through how you could fortify the resilience, both of the humans that oversee those systems and of the material systems themselves. And so I think that effort to design in resilience, to design in being able to come out on the other side uh, of an event that may be terrible, may be catastrophic, but thinking through the ability of humans to persevere and come out on the other side of that is in fact empowering. And I would say further, Tom, that uh, the students who've been involved in this program are probably among the most resilient living through this pandemic. They've thought through uh, what disaster looks like and what resilience strategies look like. And further, they know there are worse things that could happen to the nation. They've thought through those too. And so in a sense, that gives you your own mental fortification that makes you feel, you um, more in control of your world, more thoughtful about it, and more hopeful in many ways. Again, that's a different thing than living in the midst of something that's going south. And Matt headed up the Office of Iraq Analysis during the very worst years of the Iraq War. So I'll let him speak to how do you keep up morale when things are really, really tough on the ground
0: yeah, I'd be interested to know.
3: yeah,
1: let me um, let me let me quickly
3: sort of uh, draw on a couple of experiences. Um, I've already touched on a piece of this because it's you know part of it Tom, is y- you need the expertise um, to be able to um, to understand and articulate a dynamic you're following. Um, that's only part of the game. The other part of it is um, there's a lot of people with expertise. so you're sitting down with a policymaker who's going to make life and death decisions. Do we send a 160,000 troops into Iraq, or, or do we pull out? They're getting expertise from all sorts of angles. So, the messaging part—you know, first of all, you want to have the expertise and be right about in your analysis. You also need to be bringing in some angles that others are not seeing, and then present it to a policy. Let me let me give you an example, um, uh, and I'm going to go back a little farther on the time, a little further on the timeline in Iraq. So, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait in 1990, mm-hmm. and suddenly. Um, a pretty bad actor, which already has about 100 billion barrels of oil, is sitting on another 100 billion barrels of oil and is in an area to take you know, the Saudi oil, which is the mother load. Quickly, a, dis- quickly a, a very simple question came down from the White House, which was, will economic sanctions alone get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait? Now, there's a million opinions on that. What we found um, as a forceful way to argue our analysis, after a whole lot of other efforts, was... Something that, on the surface, seemed kind of simple, but it actually you know required as much creativity and anticipatory thinking as it did just flat out analysis. And one of the one of the points we made with the policymakers, including the White House and and the Hill, was um, we, we were able to show them in living color um, the, economic, the economic hardship that Iraqis had suffered through about eight years of war with the Iranians. And in addition to that, they had a steady stream of body bags coming home from that very bloody war front. And none of that stress caused what we were hoping with economic sanctions is that the Iraqi populace would rise up and toss Saddam out of power. And what we were able to sort of illustrate was they suffered this—they suffered this economic stuff from the through eight years of war and all that death—and that still didn't get them to rise up. And so it was—you know—it was one of those things that leads to an anticipatory moment. Yep, economic sanctions are not going to get them out. Um, we had similar sort of circumstances with um, the the other big Iraq event um, we had back in when we invaded in 2003, um, and that was, um, are we facing a bunch of regime dead-enders and criminals? You know, this is just going to kind of evaporate away or something else? Well, the answer was something else, and it required a similar sort of creative anticipatory approach to persuade them. Nope, Uh, you're facing a large, um, increasingly sophisticated, seething, surging um, Iraqi-Sunni-Indigenous insurgency that's so well-financed it could last for the rest of your lives.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah, thanks, thanks for those uh, comments. Uh, later in the hour, we're going to return to uh, Matt Barrett and talk about uh, security implications of the current uh, pandemic. But I want to turn uh, next uh, to the other student we have on the line uh, from the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, and that's James Brazel. Uh, so your paper, you looked at bottlenecks in the pharmaceutical uh, supplies, and uh, fragility, certain fragility in the, in the supply chain. We're we're looking at least at the potential of, of those problems right now. Uh, do you? I, I guess a similar question I asked uh, Calvin. You probably couldn't have anticipated it would, th- these things would be happening uh, just a couple of months after you wrote your paper.
2: Yeah, um, when I I drafted and submitted this paper about a year ago, and when I did. Um, one of the points that actually really surprised me as I learned about the supply chain was that we are sort of in a perpetual state of shortage of of an average of about 100 um, drugs of one kind or another. And so I don't know, I don't think uh, I, more than anyone, could have predicted a pandemic. But um, I was aware that at some point, you know, there would be someone in my life who is touched by a shortage because we're sort of constantly subject to them because of the, the fragility and the frailty of our, our supply chain right now.
0: And you write in your paper that, that I think that's because, for obvious reasons, the, the supply chain wants to be very efficient. But But to be efficient, there's a certain fragility that's baked in, right?
2: Yes. And as you ask this question, I'll, I'll, make a, I'll make a note here about something we've been talking about. And, and, you've, and I've noticed even you, as, during this conversation, you've moved from asking how we predicted things to how we've thought through things. And this is a really, really good illustration of that. So I didn't sort of predict any big shock or break in the supply chain, but I was able to go through and realize, hey, you know, our supply chain has a, has a habit, you know, of concentrating production, um, often overseas but not necessarily and this efficiency uh, is really useful for some things. You know, it, it can make it can make drugs cheaper. Uh, sometimes it's easier to produce more of them. However, it makes us a, um, it makes us subject not just to bottlenecks, but to um, entire collapses. And so, one some of the some of the earlier work this decade about um, our supply chain. A lot of people have noted an anecdote about uh, when a hurricane hit puerto rico all of a sudden the united states was sort of out of saline and the, over three quarters we found out you know uh... to to some general outrage that more than three quarters of our saline production was largely coming from puerto rico and that workforce and those facilities had been hit and there was there was no one else to sort of um, pick up the slack or step into supply Right? And so all of the fragilities and frailties of the supply chain were magnified in that moment because of the habit of concentration that's sort of endemic to the entire supply chain. And rational, I want to point out, it's not an irrational thing to want to do to, to concentrate. It makes a lot of sense business-wise, um, but it is not necessarily something that produces a resilient um, framework or a resilient supply chain.
0: And this is one of the, I guess this is the value of thinking it through, doing these thought experiments, right? Because if you're an individual company, uh, in other words, somebody has to think it through uh, from a general level because an individual company, you're, you're just trying to survive and thrive and, and, uh, and you're not thinking about the overall system.
2: Absolutely, and so part of the part of the paper touches on this. You know, where is this? Where is the solution going to come from? Does this need to be government directed? Can it can it happen at in an industry wide level? Um, but the the solution is there has to be, you know, there's a company is an actor, and the solution to this sort of problem, this sort of system wide problem, has to be a framework that is agreed upon at a level above that actor. So whether or not that's coordinated by a regulatory agency or whether or not that's industry consensus, somebody sort of has to decide how to build redundancy and how to make that system resilient. And and so, and so that is actually another question we deal with a lot. When you have emergent problems, you often have to solve them in what is sort of um, a regulatory or legal gray zone. Who's, whose problem is this? Is this a security problem? Is this a public health problem? And you have to sort of come to terms with you need to, the, somebody, whether it is industry or government, needs to pioneer the space and the body that will take care of thinking through and establishing um, best practices and solutions to these problem
0: sets. Yeah, because as you say in your paper, building redundancy will not be popular, <laughs> because it's not in the no. not in the best interest of, of any given company, right? Um, not
2: not in the short term, no. Not not in the not in the quarterly term, of course, for sure not. Um, and it, it might be sold to corporations over time. Um, it is very expensive to have your production disappear if there's a pandemic and you have a product that's primarily sourced from precursors in India and all of a sudden the villagers who who source that and um, produce that chemical are all of a sudden out of work. Then it might make good long-term business sense. Um, and so that that's a conversation to be had again at the industry level um, because in that case, you know, you do want to – Uh, shore up against sudden and acute shortages
0: Mm. Uh, just quickly here for this segment um, do you you take away i'm not sure what your major is what's your major
2: oh i'm getting my master's in political science and i did my undergraduate in international relations and that's a good question because the center gives us sort of two chances first like Jeannie said, it's the chance to sort of um, mingle and collaborate with people like like Calvin here, who have vastly different backgrounds, and I and I enjoy being able to sit around and conference with students who have um, expertises that are so diverse from my own. But it also gives us the opportunity to sort of nose dive out of our disciplines. Who's I've I've done a project about pharmaceutical supply chains. I've done another project about um, sort of the opiate crisis, and. Both of them had international aspects, but who who do those problems belong to? A pre med student, a business student, a political science student, and so again, it has provided us the forum to take on those problems, even if they don't fall squarely within our disciplines.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's the point I want to emphasize that there's the, the great value in this interdisciplinary uh, focus. Um, well, I want to turn. We have about five minutes left in the program. I want to turn those uh, those minutes uh, back to uh, Matt Barrett, and uh, maybe just take us a, a brief, uh, you know, take off some bullet points or a brief overview of some of the security implications of the current pandemic. Some some things we may not be thinking about. Do it. Do we have uh, Matt Barrett with us?
3: Tom, can you hear me? I can hear
0: you. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Right,
3: and I just traded phones for some reason. Okay. Uh, um, I'm having signals. Yeah, let's let's hit a few of these quickly. Um, anytime uh, governments are under stress, uh, they become more vulnerable to all sorts of actors, including bad ones. The whole wide world's um, set of governments is under stress, so um, bad actors such as, uh, you you could name them, um, the Harder Edges of the Muslim Brotherhoods, the Taliban, um, ISIS, Al-Qaeda. A lot of folks think Al-Qaeda is done with. It isn't. Those organizations have proven how effective they can be uh, when a government is already under stress, is unpopular, um, and is unable to deliver services, such as protecting people from a pandemic. Those folks are very practiced at parachuting in, providing some of those services, and trying to push those governments from power. So that's something that's in motion to a great degree right now, um, to a great, you know, more in areas such as the Middle East and South Asia uh, than in uh, uh, America or or Latin America. Uh, But, you know, we have uh, strategic interests, everything from bases um, to energy interests. That's something that's in motion. We need to talk about the fiscal debt a bit. Um, The U.S. added about 10% of uh, debt to its fiscal situation in the blink of an eye, and we may be adding, adding some more. In the short term, uh, a lot of economists are saying that's not that big of a deal. Our debt service as a percentage of our GDP hasn't changed much, and debt service, not total debt, since World War II. That's because the interest rates are so low, and we have to keep rolling over that debt. So as we roll it into the future, economists will tell you, and I'm one of them, it's not a matter of whether interest rates will rise. They're going to. It's just a matter of when. And when they do, we will suddenly have to roll over a much bigger pile of debt and suddenly that can have huge implications for how much money we have left for, to run the country after we've paid that debt. Um, supply chains are breaking down. They've been breaking down before the pandemic occurred, Tom, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, popularism, uh, populism and how that's affected uh, political orientation and isolationism across a lot of parts of the country, uh, parts of the world. That's, that's increasing prices and access to stuff that matters. And the last one I'll hit very quickly is um, Alliances. So you know, some of the alliances in the West have been in pretty rough shape. Um, one of the things that's been striking is, as we've looked across those alliances to see who's, who's been willing to help the United States um, get some of the uh, um, resources that are needed for the, to manage the pandem- pandemic, practically none of our, our allies uh, made exceptions to their export controls on things such as personal protection equipment. Um, some other folks did, but they didn't. So I think we're going to have to keep a close eye on what happens to our alliances, which are already in kind of a tough stretch um, as we go f- go through this pandemic and come out the other end. I'm going to I'm going to stop at those
0: four. Yeah, those those are those are very interesting uh, things that we may not have th- thought of as ramifications from the from the pandemic. We just have about yeah. a minute left, Gene uh, Johnson. I'll give you the last word. The, the, anything else you want to say about the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence or the value of this uh, this field?
1: I think you have seen the value for yourself, Tom, with those two brilliant students. They just did such a fantastic job of articulating their experience within the courses and the research that they've put together and the way that it helped to think through problem sets that we're currently living. It expands your creativity. It expands the horizons of what you pay attention to. So, for instance, in our first and required course, all students read The Economist, which, as you know, touches on social, technical, political, economic, and even um, cultural, like the arts, kinds of issues. And in the second semester, they read the MIT Tech Review. So they come out of the program widely educated, which means fewer surprises Uh, more tools for thinking through what's in front of you. And out of the program, we've had students launch into fascinating occupations. So we have students working for tech companies. We have one who was just hired by Cybercom to look at the Russian disinformation campaign for the next election cycle. We have students who are tracking regional issues on specific countries. So we have, um, and of course, You know, we do our best to facilitate students who are interested in public service as well with the State Department and CIA and the Defense Department. In addition, the center does professional training. So we have done a lot of outreach to the Utah National Guard and have worked with them on some of the initiatives that they are pursuing by providing training to their soldiers and officers. And so the students get exposure to all kinds of different venues where their expertise could be brought to bear and could be really
0: useful. Wonderful. Um... We've been talking with several uh, folks associated with the USU Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, or CAI. We've been talking with CAI Director and USU Associate Professor of Political Science Jeannie Johnson. Also, Matt Barrett, co-founder of the center, former assistant director of the CIA, and uh, two CAI uh, CAI students, James Brazel and Calvin Liu. Thanks, everyone, for participating today.
1: Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom.
0: Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah.